Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, uh, February 12th, 2014. Uh, I just want to, as it's the last two days, want to remind everybody if you haven't yet to complete your engagement surveys that you get in your email inboxes. Um, you're getting emails regularly, even if you've filled it out already, because they are anonymous. So they don't know who's completed and who hasn't completed. So everybody gets the reminder. The more that complete the survey, we hope for 100%, the more likely we can actually take the results locally in our department and in our sections and, and, and interpret the results. If there's a small result, it'll just get washed out in the larger survey. We have Grand Rounds uh, next week, February 19th. Uh, Neil Lalico, who is uh, Chief of uh, Gastroenterology at Hasbro Children's Hospital at Brown University, is going to join us to kick off our next CHAD mini fellowship series, which is focused on pediatric gastroenterology. He's going to talk about uh, adherence factors and novel adherence strategies and how that affects outcomes in inflammatory bowel disease in adolescents. So um, uh, an interesting talk. Today we have a triple th threat triumvirate from, from our home uh, department of pediatrics uh, to update us on global health initiatives that, are, that folks at CHAD and the Department of Pediatrics are engaged in. So none have any disclosures or all disclosures have been reported and there is no conflict per the committee. I'll introduce them all so that they can keep the show rolling once they get going. We're going to have uh, Tyler Hartman who uh, may, not be, may not have spoken at this venue before. Tyler's an assistant professor of pediatrics in the section of neonatology. He was an undergrad at Furman University, received his MD at Kigezi School of Medicine, trained at the Mayo Clinic in Pediatrics and Neonatology at Boston Children's Hospital, joined us here at CHAD uh, in 2012, two years ago or so after working at Floating Hospital at Tufts Medical Center. Uh, Jack Van Hoff is also going to join, uh, speak to us today, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, as you know, and the Chief of the Section of Hematology and Oncology. Uh, Jack graduated from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute for undergrad and the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey for medical school, <clears throat> trained at Yale for residency as well as fellowship, and joined us from Yale in 2008 as a social professor, as I mentioned. And then I think Paul's going to kick it off. Paul, I've introduced at the, the Modlin Symposium, but was a, a graduate of the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester and stayed local for medical school in Vermont, as well as his residency here completed after a year in Richmond, Virginia. Fellowship at Stanford uh, in pediatric infectious disease and also joined us from University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. So we've got uh, two UMDNJ uh, colleagues came in 2006 and um, is professor of pediatrics and medicine. I think Paul's going to kick it off. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Keith. It's really a pleasure to be here this morning. As you uh, heard, we're going to uh, have a team event here. Uh, and we're really going to update you on uh, a program that's of uh, high interest, I think, in Rwanda. And so why are we talking about Rwanda this morning? Um, it's a very small country in central Africa. It's right on the equator, but it's uh, at elevations of 5,000 feet and above, so it's quite temperate, actually. And it's about the size of New Hampshire. It has about 10 times the number of people uh, as the state of New Hampshire, uh, but it's, it's quite a small country. As everybody knows, it went through uh, a, a terrible period of genocide around 1990. Uh, and, and they have very creatively and dynamically uh, risen from uh, the ashes of that uh, problem uh, and, and internally really driven their uh, march forward. One of the problems that they've clearly recognized is a uh, desperate need for uh, medical professionals in the country. We probably have more physicians uh, at DHMC and Dartmouth than they do in the entire country. Uh, nursing uh, is more robust, but certainly quite limited. Uh, and, and the uh, leadership of the country recognized this. And rather than approaching things piecemeal as far as trying to build healthcare capacity in the country. They had a much grander and bold vision. Uh, they wanted to attack this uh, uh, in a quite large way. 
there uh, was created a sort of an incubator, if you will, for a solution to their problems. And it was driven by the leadership in Rwanda, not by the US. Uh, but they partnered with the US State Department, with the PEPFAR program, which is the big HIV TB uh, donor program through the State Department to uh, many countries around the world for HIV and TB care, and with the uh, Clinton Health Access Initiative. This is the Clinton Foundation. Uh, their goal was to transform medical education for doctors, nurses, and dentists. Uh, and they wanted to do this over a seven-year period. Uh, and they were able to convince the US government uh, to provide $150 million over seven years. Uh, so this began in 2012. Uh, about two years ago now, myself and a number of other uh, Dartmouth um, global health uh, leaders visited Rwanda together with many uh, representatives from other medical schools in the United States to jumpstart uh, this program which has been called HRH. The aim is to build a high quality and sustainable healthcare system. Uh, there are many challenges uh, that were faced uh, and recognized uh, by the Rwandans that were uh, going to be addressed uh, specifically through this program. Many uh, US schools were contracted or partnered with the Rwandan government and their uh, Ministry of Health. And you can see them listed here in the areas of uh, medicine, nursing, public health, and dentistry. Uh, in bold and italics, I've listed the schools, uh, which include uh, Geisel, uh, that are involved in the pediatric training effort. Uh, our program here at Dartmouth in Pediatrics has been allocated about two and a half to three pediatric FTEs annually. So our, our uh, mission is to recruit faculty from here to go to Rwanda uh, from anywhere uh, a minimum of eight weeks for pediatric subspecialists and a 12-month commitment for pediatric general, generalists to go to Rwanda and teach side by side with Rwandan faculty. So it's primarily a teaching mission the target is uh, the equivalent of pediatric residents here uh, to train uh, that level of uh, pediatrician uh, in Rwanda. This HRH program, uh, it's not a, a volunteer program on the part of a US-based faculty, uh, but there is the provision of salary, of transportation, and of housing support. Uh, one can bring significant others and or uh, entire families, and that has occurred in the uh, first two years now that uh, we have uh, uh, engaged the HRH program. There's a lot of support on the part of the Dartmouth College and medical school community uh, and DHMC behind the scenes. And you can see here listed a, a large number of groups uh, that are involved in supporting this program uh, and being sure that it's done uh, in a high quality manner. So, year one was 2012 to 2013, and in pediatrics, we had two graduating pediatric residents from our program go, uh, Dory Glenn and Heather Robinson. Heather was a uh, chief resident here. Uh, and a senior pediatrician, uh, I don't think Jim would mind being called senior, he uh, is a Dartmouth College grad, uh, but has been practicing for the last uh, 30 years or so in Wyoming. Uh, and he contracted with us wanting to go, uh, and we were able to support his uh, travel and, and time in, in Rwanda. Tyler also went, I believe, in year one in the spring uh, and spent eight weeks. And he's going to share with you this morning some of his experiences uh, as a neonatology faculty member uh, uh, working in Rwanda. In year two, which we're in now, uh, Allison Ball, who's from Wayne State, uh, worked with us in uh, gaining access to the program in year two. Uh, Dory Glenn re-upped. He's uh, there now, and he's uh, going to spend about another six months there in year two. Uh, Jack Van Hoff went uh, this last year in, uh, uh, for an eight-week period. And Tyler Hart Hardman went again for one or two weeks, I think, this year. But this is a picture of the main teaching hospital uh, in Kigali, the capital. Uh, it's a much bigger uh, entity than you see here, but it's a, a brief picture. And you'll see many more pictures from uh, Jack and Tyler. Here's Dory. Uh, I think this is in the 
what, what is supposed to be their emergency department or intensive care unit, uh, and a, a group of individuals working on a, a very sick child. The Clintons have visited. There have been uh, reports in the New England Journal of Medicine on this program. Uh, it's very dynamic. Uh, it's very visible. Uh, and it's a potential model for the continent going forward. So I'm going to leave you with this thought and ask Jack to come up and uh, spend some time and share experiences uh, from his perspective as a hematology oncologist. Okay, thank you. Um, see if I can find where I need to be here. Uh, so uh, some of what I, there's no monitor here, so I can't see what's on the screen until I come out and go like that. So I'll be standing up this way. My, the monitor is uh, under repair. Um, I, I will skip over some of these slides. As Paul pointed out, Rwanda is in the middle of Africa. It is a mountainous country with a lot of lakes in it. Um, from a distance, on very selective views, it could look a little bit like New Hampshire with mountains and <laughs> fog laying in the valley. But the reality is much different because the country is extremely densely populated. Pretty much every square inch of land is cultivated. Most of that is in the form of subsistence farming although there is some larger tea plantations and other uh, more industry sort of far farming that takes place as well. And you can't see it from this distance, but the place is full of people and especially full of children. Uh, wherever you go, wherever you turn out, groups of kids come out in large bunches. And uh, the, the fact is, as Paul mentioned, the, the size is about the same as New Hampshire. The population is about tenfold higher. The numbers vary based on what year you go from. Um, the percentage of children under 18 is a lot higher than it is in New Hampshire. There's about 6 million people under the age of 18. And in 2009, there were uh, 20 pediatricians by their count giving, as opposed to our ratio in, in New Hampshire, about 1,000 to 1 kids to pediatricians, about 300,000 to 1. So what can doctors do even under those circumstances? Um, uh, as Paul mentioned, the genocide, which happened in 1994, had an extreme effect both on life expectancy. Um, many people were killed outright. Many people became refugees and came back to the country several years later. Uh, the entire infrastructure of the country in terms of business, uh, government, uh, and the medical system was basically destroyed and had to be rebuilt some, from scratch. And the fact that life expectancy has not only gotten back to where it was, but is now above that is a tribute to the amount of aid that was poured in and to the government and country of Rwanda itself and the focus that they put <coughs> on um, restoring uh, health to their people. As you can see here, infant mortality peaked around 1994, not only has dropped back to the pre-levels, but well below that and below that of other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, hospitalizations for, for <clears throat> malaria have dropped way down, related in large part to public health measures of access to insecticide-treated bed nets. Uh, the mortality from malaria dropped drastically. There's a few other me measures of what are really public health steps that took place prior to 2009, 2010. Children sleeping under insecticide-treated nets. Uh, children given all basic vaccines, which is at a very high rate. Uh, the deliveries at health facilities. And if you look at the uh, improvement in infant in child mortality com compared to the amount of dollars invested, you can see that Rwanda really stands out in terms of benefit per money invested. And this was pretty much all on the basis of public health measures. Almost none of these things de depended on physician work. Um, as children survive in a small country with a high population, uh, you're only going to have more problems because of being able to support that population. So that's a two-edged piece there. And uh, intensive e efforts have gone on con contraception and a drop in the birth rate 
in 2012, Rwanda was one of four countries that won an award from World Health Assembly in terms of reduction in birth rate in recent times, and that continues. Um, but this brings us up to the start of the HRH program, or the decisions that were made to start that. In 2009, by report, there were about 20 pediatricians for 6 million children. So obviously, children were taken care of by local district health workers and not by pediatricians. Uh, 14 of these worked in pu public hospitals, 10 of them in teaching facility. There were two who had some subspecialty training, both in cardiology. There was a pediatric residency program with supposedly 10 slots per year, but in 2009, only 16 of the 40 slots were filled. And there was a steady loss of re residents for a couple reasons. One was concerned of the quality of education and the potential for employment afterwards. So this, as Paul has stated, really um, was the driving force behind Rwanda trying to make a decision as to what can we do to improve the health of our population and what can we do to improve our medical system and then working with the United States to find funding for that. Uh, the Rwandan vision, which has been articulated many times, including by the Minister of Health who has spoken here on se several occasions, is that Rwanda is a small country with a lot of people in it. It doesn't have valuable natural resources but it does have its people as its most valuable natural resource. So education and proper health care has really been the primary, some of the primary goals of their government as a way of improving the future for Rwanda. Um, they started with pu public health measures, as I mentioned, and it, there's an extensive system with about 400 some health centers and about 40 district hospitals. They started in about 2009, mandatory health insurance. Everyone has to pay for health insurance except the poorest folks, uh, which pay no, no fees. Um, and the pay, the, their insurance is actually paid for by the government. Health expenditure was so far below what we are used to, but up considerably in recent years was about $56 per person. Half of that came from outside funds. Many of it was by bilateral agreements targeted towards specific areas. And the goal was then to use the HRH program to start a, a strategic plan that would deal with um, this on a national level. The, the key was the governance was to be under the government of Rwanda. Uh, Paul and I have slightly different numbers. I quoted this out of one article. But it's a large amount of money over seven years with the goal of increasing I'll skip that. It duplicates what he showed. Really, um, to, to train over that time about 500 Rwandan residents, and not only the residents, but the faculty that they have now. So when faculty go there, you are paired with someone who is your twin, um, whom you work with. Not only do you teach the residents, but you work with your twin to model and to teach and to train and to work with them so that they can carry on what you've done while you were there. And hopefully, you, may, you maintain email contact with that person or that team after you've come back. I was there in September and October. And I had extensive email contact before I went there. And we, you know, average get at least one email a day on patient management questions and other issues that go back and forth. Um, they, as Paul mentioned, they wanted to upgrade the training of a large number of nurses. They had a lot of nurses, but most were trained at the level of a high school diploma. So they have really very little medical training. And the idea is to raise a large number of nurses' training level to that of an RN equivalent year with a three-year program, and then to increase the number of nurse practitioners and midwives as well. Very important also was to develop a master's degree program in hospital administration. And I'll illustrate that in one of the other slides. This is the same entrance, different photo that Paul showed. The mm -hmm. hospital itself, the Kigali University Teaching Hospital, recent name change from Seashuka, which most people know it as, um, is kind of a sprawling structure of one-story buildings that's spread out. The buildings, for the most part, have no indoor connections. So during rainy season, um, sometime the nurse will refuse to take the patient to the CT scan at the only sedated slot that you have because it's raining. Uh, this becomes a big issue. Uh, <clears throat> so we made trips in the rain sometimes. Um, the, this is a low-resolution re picture, but the pediatric 
building is a U-shaped building with an open courtyard where laundry is done and dried during when it's not raining. Um, and the wards tend to be open 10 to 12 bed wards, officially 10. There are more beds than that at times. The beds are quite close to each other. Parents stay in with the children uh, and, in fact, provide almost all the care for the children except for medicine. Um, and there's no you know, sleeping in arrangements. The parents sleep in the bed with the child for the most part, or if the child's large, somehow next to the bed. Um, simple things that we count on, such as the hospital providing food, uh, is, is not carried out. Uh, uh, NGOs will bring in one meal a day to the pediatric unit, so everybody gets a fairly substantial meal in the middle of the day, and families are expected to purchase and provide their children with food while they're in the hospital. Um, children who are malnourished qualify for supplemental uh, feedings, and there's a whole process going through that when they are available. Um, the Pediatric ICU uh, is, as uh, Paul mentioned, some areas are fairly well equipped with fairly high-tech material that actually is working. Um, uh, but in some ways, this only makes decision processes harder for the physicians. I, I think sometimes it's easier if you have no ventilators than if you have two ventilators, which are currently occupied, one by a patient that you don't think is going to survive, and there's somebody else who needs a ventilator. Now, that's just, it really, there are severe ethical quandaries that folks face on a daily basis. Um, the operating rooms can be fairly well equipped. Uh, this picture conveniently hides some of the ceiling that is in not quite as good repair as the other parts of the, of the operating room. But the use uh, is often, they often sit empty because there's no space in the recovery room because patients remain in the recovery room for an extended period of time because there are either no beds in the hospital or no trained nurses in other parts of the hospital to be able to take care of a patient at that state. Um, and some of the reasons why they can't leave the recovery room is because the beds are occupied by patients who have not yet paid their copay. So we ran into the situation where we had patients on our ward, they can't leave the hospital until they pay their part of the bill. It's a, it's a health insurance process. Many people have a copay that's required. And what seems bizarre to us is that the family stays there occupying a bed until they can get back to the village, get people to collect money, bring in enough money to have a copay paid. And sometimes other people come up with this just so the child can leave because operations don't happen that should happen because of this whole chain of events. And that's where hospital management and wise decisions are uh, really lacking. Um, they do have child life. There is a room that's equipped uh, in the pediatric hospital there. So I'll spend just a few minutes going over uh, what it was like for me at the start of year two. Um, at that point, there were eight US trained faculty to work with about 15 Rwandan faculty in um, uh, uh, the pediatric program. These are all pediatricians. Three of those eight were doing their second year, including Dory, who is from here. Um, it, the start of this program has made a real difference. Uh, the pediatrics program now has 40 residents. Um, the residency is quite competitive. Pati um, people in the program are staying. It's interesting, the class that had entered and gone through the first full year, to many of us, seemed to be the best of the three years, and then there was a just starting year, in that they seemed to have not learned the old practices, but they started afresh and were the most interested and uh, committed and in many ways kind of a different crowd. So it really looks like things are changing. Uh, the morale is good. Residents are interested in completing research projects. Um, the junior faculty are enthusiastic and eager for opportunities. As you might expect, some senior faculty who've been there for a long time um, have either stepped back, retired, or in some cases been demoted. Rwanda, this has been a tough time for senior faculty because it was a, a Francophone country up until about 2009, 2008, when it was declared to be Anglophone from that point on. So now the, the language of 
the residency program and the medical school and everything else is in English, um, whereas the older people have spoken French their whole life for the medical side of it, and it is harder for them to switch over. It makes it feasible for the people from the United States to go there and teach, and for the most part, the residents and medical students are quite fluent in English, uh, but older for older folks, it's a real problem. Selected faculty from Rwanda are supported to pursue fellowships and additional training outside of Rwanda. In fact, the twin that I worked with while I was there is now in South Africa doing a residence, doing a fellowship in pediatric hemonc. Um, what did the schedule look like? It's actually, not surprisingly, quite a bit like uh, ours with some differences. Morning report was daily at 7.30, and uh, this year, most faculty attended. Um, the focus this year was really to use that morning report as a teaching experience, work through the case in much the same way that we may do at Wednesday conference, as opposed to listing all the patients and talking about the management of those specific patients, which became very hard to do with large numbers of, with not large, but let's say six to 10 patients admitted each night. Um, Wednesday of each week is M&M. &M. Unlike here, there's a lot of material to work with. Uh, it's not hard to find uh, cases for M&M. For &M. And uh, this is something that's a bit different for the US faculty who go there as well, uh, it, quite honestly. There are about five to seven deaths a week. Uh, some of these patients you know, die before they ever get to the floor because of the condition they arrive to the ER in. Um, but others dwindle and die of things that you can't help because of the place where, where it is. Um, bedside war rounds happen each day. We tried to start and finish within two hours time. Um, it really, the, the goal was to focus on the clinical management and planning during that time as opposed to more main mundane things such as finding results, scheduling tests and writing notes. This is a culture change. Uh, and uh, the idea that the residents operate independently and then carry out the decisions you made on rounds when you're no longer there is something that takes a while to actually take hold. And uh, I talked with some of my colleagues at first and said, why do we spend all this time while they write things in the chart when we're on rounds? He said, you know, we've tried to go both ways with this, and if we, they don't do it then, it may not get done, and then the next team at night and everything else doesn't do what we decided to do because it hasn't been written down yet. So that's a, it's a work in progress, quite honestly. Um, there is usually a lecture in the afternoon, uh, supposedly from two to three. The reality is quite different. One of the first things that was told to me when I arrived in Rwanda was, um, in Europe and America, you have watches. In Africa, we have time, which is very clever, but things don't necessarily start and stop in the way that we expect them. Um, uh, and that has taken uh, some getting used to on my part. Um, you can I use this picture, which is again a picture with Dory on it, to show that in fact the attendants have stethoscopes. The uh, Students do not necessarily have stethoscopes, but they do have uh, smartphones with light apps that can show the, the child's pharynx. So it's always the youngest people of the team who have the most modern equipment. Uh, uh, it's, some things don't change. Um, frankly, I'll just go very quickly through, through a few things here. I was brought there to teach hematology and oncology. And I honestly thought mostly what I would do is teach about hematology. Surprisingly enough, Rwanda has very little sickle cell disease. Um, the prevalence of the S gene in the Rwandan African population is uh, less than a quarter of the prevalence, actually about an eighth of the prevalence as it is in American Africans uh, uh, or Americans of African descent, in large part because it's a very mountainous region. It was not traditionally a high malaria re re region. Most of the Africans in America came here from the West Coast in lowland areas where malaria is much more prevalent and the S gene is much more prevalent accordingly. So we saw much less sickle cell than I thought I was gonna see. Um, 
I didn't really intend think that I was going to treat cancer while I was there. But in fact, there is a pediatric cancer treatment program that goes on. They actually don't administer chemotherapy currently at the teaching hospital. But the diagnosis, workup, and surgery takes place at the teaching hospital. And pediatric cancer treatment happens at a Partners in Health hospital, which is about three hours away. There's a picture of the building in the north part of the country. Um, the Partners in Health program uh, expanded. Sarah Stulak actually has talked here in the past about treating cancer in Rwanda and uh, some of the success rates that they had. And they decided, based on a very local program in one hospital of theirs, that they would dedicate this particular hospital in the town of Butaro um, to uh, treating patients with cancer. They wanted to be able to control this. They wanted to make the decisions as to who would be accepted into the treatment program, um, how they would be monitored, how the resources would be used. They did this intentionally, not at one of the other hospitals, because they felt they would not be able to have control over that. And they felt that much of the cancer treatment that had been given in Rwanda up to that point was very ineffective and was actually using resources without any good results as a in the, in the end. So one of my goals, actually, I'd met with uh, partners in health folks before I went there. I'd met with them again just recently after I came back, um, is to try and improve communication between the two programs so things uh, proceed more seamlessly. Um, just a brief example of what kind of patients did we see. I was assigned, uh, obviously, to the Hemonc ward. Uh, there were about 64 patients that came into that or were on that ward during the seven, eight weeks that I was here. I was in Rwanda for eight weeks and spent one week at the medical school area. Um, out of those, about 25 of them did not have cancer or a hematologic problem. They had a different issue. But out of those that did, I would say uh, out of about the 40 or 39 that did, about a quarter of them would either had low-grade tumors that were resected and cured or a benign condition that was hospitalized and then discharged. Uh, about another almost half of them had potentially curable diseases, principally ALL, lymphoma, or Wilms tumor, uh, which is these, these are the diagnoses that are currently being treated for cancer in Rwandan children. And then a good quarter of, of them really we did not have resources to treat. So they were offered palliative care, transferred back to their home hospital with the knowledge that they had had the best that Rwanda can do, but we couldn't help their child. Um, this kind of reiterates that from those who had left. Uh, this kind of is my take on where they were when they came into us, based on what I thought their diagnosis was. Um, you could see that about. <coughs> 20% of them went home with what I considered the prospect of recovery and survival. About 40% of them were transferred for chemotherapy. So one of the big issues was, are the patients who can benefit actually getting to the cancer treatment program? And I think mostly they are. We worked a lot while I was there on improving communication, having a weekly conference call, um, regular email communication to set things up so you know who is going and who might be coming back. There's an exchange there. that. Um, really has solidified and has improved compared to what it used to be. And uh, about 40% of the patients we honestly uh, could not help. Um, we are actually planning some uh, investigative things, tracking the results of Wilms tumor as to is treatment being completed on time. The big problems with treating cancer in most of the low-income countries are deaths from other causes, infection, malnutrition, and uh, abandonment of therapy. So families can come to the central hospital this, uh, from many miles away and many hours of travel away. But they come a point when they have large families and other children, and the mother can't stay there. And if the child looks better on treatment, they wind up taking the child back home. But of course, his treatment gets interrupted. The cancer recurs, and uh, there's really not much point for salvage at that, that time. So cancer treatment programs in low income really have to focus on nutrition support, uh, social support, and completion of therapy. And that's something that is really where this has to go if it's going to have an impact on children. Um, we're also trying to keep track of exactly what comes in there so we have a better sense of what the diagnoses are. And uh, uh, also, the fellow the twin 
who's now in a training program, would actually like, as his project, to do a public health project to um, do education in district hospitals and health centers so that children get referred at an earlier stage. Um, all too often, we see kids with Wilms tumor come in like this, where the Wilms tumor is about a third of their body weight. The child, uh, you can see ribs exposed and is very malnourished. And it just, Wilms tumor is a curable disease in low-income countries. The drugs to treat it are not that expensive. But when the child is um, severely malnourished and has a gigantic tumor, it just complicates the treatment very much. So some of the improvements, if we can do that, are at a point that doesn't involve more expensive ways of managing kids, but actually earlier identification and treatment. Um, a quick thank you to folks I worked with there. These are three of the physicians I worked most closely with while I was there. And a special thank you to Julie Kim and Sarah Chaffee, who frankly covered while for eight weeks while I was in Rwanda and did uh, the full share of work that I otherwise might have done while I was here. So with that, I'll turn it over to Tyler. Click on the bottom. There you go. Perfect. All right. So um, I'll take a slightly different focus for the for the HRH program uh, and discuss my role with HRH as well as the Rwandan Neonatal Network, which was one of my projects when I was in Rwanda with my twin. So the first thing I learned is don't underestimate Rwandans. They are incredibly, um, incredible ability to do things on the resources that you would not think is possible. <laughs> uh, so uh, as he said, I went to Shigesi International School of Medicine, which was a medical school that was focused on global health. Um, so I'm interested in uh, medicine in Nepal, so I wanted to focus my career in global health. and. Um, the, I lived in southern uh, Uganda, right on the border of Rwanda, about two hours north of uh, Kigali. That's how I initially got interested in Rwanda. Uh, I had multiple visits in the before going with HRH. When I was a medical student, I had a tourist visit. And then my wife was working for an organization called the International Organizations for Women's Development. Uh, and the head of that, Barbara Mangalese, um, had been uh, uh, very interested in proving the NICU in one of the district hospitals and asked me to join my wife on one of the trips to help develop the NICU. Um, I fell in love with Rwanda at that time, and then when my uh, wife and I were looking to move out of Boston, uh, one of the main things that attracted me to Dartmouth was the HRH program, and I started here in, uh, a little over a year ago. I went for, to Rwanda with HRH in the spring for a little over six weeks, I worked at all the referral hospital NICUs, uh, as well as the center of excellence that they have there, uh, the private hospital. I was twinned with Dr. Raisa, who is, uh, there are no neonatologists in Rwanda. Um, she was a pediatrician that was particularly interested in neonatology, so she was my twin. And in discussions before I went, one of the main things she wanted to do was to work on data collection, because there is literally no data on infants in the intensive care unit in Rwanda. So, uh, some background for Rwanda neonatal data. The, infant mor the neonatal mortality rate is 27 per thousand. This compares to uh, the country with the lowest neonatal mortality rate is Singapore with 1.9 per thousand. Uh, most of the Scandinavian countries are in the range of 2 per thousand. Uh, the US is 34th, right behind Cuba, uh, with 5.9 per thousand. 36% of the uh, deaths under five years old are uh, in neonates, and that's actually lower than uh, the average of developing countries. The main causes per the Department of uh, Health survey was hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, 38%, prematurity, 26%, and infection, 16%. I would take those numbers with a grain of salt because I don't think they're accurate. Um, so these are the hospitals I worked at. You can see the red stars. Four main hospitals were in uh, Kigali. Then you have the main referral hospital in the south of Mutari. And then you have the PIH hospital um, that Jack was mentioning that is up near the Rwandan border. So the Siyashika is the main teaching hospital. The has 20 beds, uh, 2,500 deliveries a year. 
They do CPAP, they have two ventilators, they don't have surfactants. Studies other than x-ray are pretty tough to get. Here's their ventilator. Um, I have done a lot of work telling them not to use the ventilator. They like to intubate things. Um, <laughs> and keep them on a ventilator for a long period of time without the mostly the ability to do blood gas, which is a more surfactant, both of which are bad combinations. So I told them they should listen to keep the ventilator on eBay, trying to get $15,000 <laughs> for it. They didn't like that suggestion. Faisal, <laughs> the main teaching hospital, the main uh, private hospital in Rwanda. Um, you have to go through one of the public referral hospitals in order to get to uh, King Faisal, and most of the patients can't afford to pay the medical costs at King Faisal. They have by far the most developed NICU. Uh, they have multiple ventilators, which they use a lot. Um, they, uh, like I said up here, they don't like to wean. A good gas is not a weanable gas in King Faisal. It is a gas where you stay in your current settings for a long period of time. They can't measure tidal volumes. They have CPAP, but they don't really use it. And you have to you pay four hundred dollars if you want to track it. But they only have to pay four hundred dollars. Zashabe is the main referral hospital in the south. They um, uh, have very similar settings, no surfactants. You can get X-rays, but really uh, the rest of the studies are, are pretty uh, pretty scarce. The Rwanda Military Hospital is the nicest public hospital. They have four brand new $40,000 drag group ventilators with compressors, which is awesome. Uh, they are now using them more responsibly, which is great. They have no surfactant, but they can have new x-rays. They have the best nursing staff in Rwanda because there was a picky nurse from Yale that went there uh, and worked in the NICU for almost a whole year. So they have a very, very well-disciplined uh, uh, nursing team there. Um, so Muhima, this is the, where the majority of deliveries in the capital occur, about 10,000 deliveries. It is uh, the center of excellence, but it's very, very poor. Uh, they have CPAP, but really minimal labs. Uh, they do x-rays. This is mostly, they have three great pediatricians in the hospital, mostly run by uh, generalists. They finish their medical school, and they have to do generalist time. Uh, and the generalist who was here when I first went uh, is now one of our pediatric residents. Partners in Health, excuse me, like Jack was mentioning, is very involved in Rwanda. They work in three districts, mostly in Butaro. Uh, they have probably the best neonatal outcomes in the country, but there's very little communication between referral hospitals and Partners in Health, and Partners in Health mostly works directly with the Ministry of Health. So uh, one of uh, me and my twins' projects when I was there was to develop um, develop a neonatal network. Uh, similar to uh, Vermont Oxford, Nepoquin, and uh, um, Neoquick, which is a Massachusetts quality improvement network. Uh, because everyone was doing their own guidelines. They were trying to do data collection, but unsuccessfully. Um, so we wanted to create a group that could present data to each other uh, and basically get more bang for your buck on quality improvement initiatives. Uh, we found represent pedi pediatric representatives that were interested in neonatology at all of the referral hospitals. We had one from the district who uh, actually just got accepted to a neonatal fellowship in Western Ontario. We put charge nurses on the steering committee for the network. Um, that was quite an ordeal at first because there's a significant hierarchy between doctors and nurses in Rwanda. Breaking down some of those barriers was initially a little tough. The Ministry of Health uh, is uh, is on the steering committee. The, the, the gentleman, Victor, who's in charge of neonatal mortality, is on the steering committee. And it's actually under the umbrella of the Rwanda Pediatric Association. Um, I'm a member of the Rwanda Pediatric Association. If any of you go to Rwanda, please become a member of the Rwanda Pediatric Association. Our inaugural meeting was in June 2013. We had about 40 people show up. We had presentations on some data collected in one of the main referral hospitals. The, the lady on the left is uh, Dr. Raisa. She was my twin. She's presenting the data we collected at Sayashika. Uh, you can see this is one of the HRH, Cliff Callahan. He's, uh, uh, works from, he's a pediatrician at Yale. Um, we presented the, the single page data sheet. We de uh, my twin and I developed, and Cliff developed a single page data sheet that goes on the top of the medical record, but is not part of the medical record. It sticks with the medical record the whole time the baby's in the NICU. Uh, at the time of discharge, it is pulled off the medical record. 
It is entered into a Microsoft Access program uh, for which monthly reports can be printed out. The, I went back again, we had a six months later, we had our second conference in October. I went back for the conference uh, and uh, we actually got the conference funded by a non-governmental organization called Birthlink, which works primarily with CPAP in England. They funded the, the presentations and uh, the meal at the conference. The main agenda items were retinopathy of prematurity, nutrition, patent ductus arteriosus, and uh, infection. And I'll go through a little of these projects, just kind of an overview. So across the top, you can see that's a portion of the data sheet. So this is the data we are collecting from the referral hospitals. Um, babies don't get back to their birth weight till well after a month in Rwanda, uh, especially if you're in the NICU. So this is a, this is a major problem. So one of, our, um, one of our goals was to collect why is this happening. While there's no parental nutrition, there is, uh, they don't like formula after the Nestle scandal that happened. So even fortifying breast milk is a huge problem. With no parental nutrition and no fortification, we, don't, we can't get these kids to grow. And we're a little nervous on how fast we escalate on uh, NG feeds because we don't know what the rate of necrotizing anticholitis is in Rwanda. Um, and this is a growth chart. We call this, it's very typical, we call this a flat line. The kid just doesn't grow for months and months and months. Uh, you'll see this probably over half the kids in the NICU have growth charts similar to this. Uh, pain ductus arteriosus. Uh, an ongoing problem with Rwanda is 99.9% .9 of the neonatal literature is based on medicine in developed countries. They see this data and try to extrapolate in Rwanda. Uh, the problem is it's a much different, a much different medical system and the data is not generalizable. So you have uh, for example, PDA. So we have, if we'll try to treat with uh, indomethacin. If it doesn't close, we have surgery to close the duct. Well, in Rwanda, they don't have surgery to close the duct. So they follow our guidelines, and they, they wait for a symptomatic duct, and then they treat, it doesn't close. Well, this kid's going to die then. Likely congestive heart failure, pulmonary hemorrhage, uh, necrotizing enterocolitis because there's no way to close that duct once the kids are old enough and the, and the ibuprofen doesn't work. So that's a huge project. project. That, this is a project that one of the residents there is working on. Neonatal sepsis is another obviously huge problem. They follow the WHO guidelines, which is based on developed country data. So their mainline antibiotics are ampicillin, gentamicin, and cefotaxime. Uh, a resident, myself, and Elizabeth Talbot, who is uh, who's an ID doc here and um, does a lot of outbreak work. We were working up an outbreak, what we thought was an outbreak of Klebsiella. Well, it turned out not to be. Um, it just turned out that all of the babies that get infected, almost all of them are Klebsiella. They're, the number, the top three causes were Klebsiella, Klebsiella, and E. coli. There were zero GBS infections, where most of our NICU talk is about GBS. None. Not a single, uh, in any of the referral hospitals have we seen a GBS infection since I started uh, working there. But, so, treating Klebsiella, 100% resistant to the first-line antibiotics, and about 50% for gentamicin and cefotaxime. So clearly, extrapolating our data to Rwanda does not work. So this is another one of our projects. Retinopathy of prematurity. So, when I was organizing the second conference, we have uh, an ophthalmologist, a retinal specialist here by the name of Ross Stevens. She's fantastic. She does a lot of our lasering for the babies in the NICU here. She's also the medical advisor to Orbis, which is a huge NGO that flies into countries and sets up training programs for ophthalmologists there and how to deal with retinal diseases. So I asked her to come and give a talk, and it just happens that she was looking for a sub-Saharan sub uh, Africa, East African uh, country to set up a retinal training program. So it worked out well. She came and gave the keynote speak, speech at our conference. Uh, and we also ended up traveling around to uh, all of the NICUs and uh, talked to all the ophthalmologists in the country to see what resources there were, how could we implement these resources and set up a training program now that we are using CPAP and oxygen on all these babies. When I worked in Vietnam for a while uh, with Project Vietnam, we found out we instituted CPAP and six months later we had a huge epidemic of ROP because the, the blend, there were not very many blenders and now we're saving kids that wouldn't otherwise have survived, and we forgot to look for ROP, and a lot of them went blind. So we went around and tried to set this program up early in the, uh, in the use of CPAP in Rwanda. 
Um, here is her, this is the Orbis plane. It's a fantastic uh, concept. Basically, the seats in the front are a theater where you can watch the surgery. And then you go back and learn how to do the surgery. And they have biomedical engineers to show you how to repair the equipment. And it's a full integrated program. And they'll usually come back uh, after a year to reevaluate how the teaching's going. So um, right now, she's presented this to Orbis. They were, they're having a meeting in. Uh, this month to decide how and to go forward with uh, starting this training program. The goal would be to set up initially a one, fly the plane in, set up one week training program for the ophthalmologist there, and eventually kind of create an East African hub for retinal disease. Uh, and with that, have Dr. Sigu and Dr. John, who are both uh, doctors at Agarwal Eye Institute there, to set up a long-term screening program for ROP in the country. We also came up with several subcommittees so we can kind of bounce ideas off each other and come up, kind of come up with quality improvement initiatives. Ali Judkins is helping me kind of go through all the emails because it tends to be a lot of, uh, a lot of emails to go through um, and a lot of communication. But those are our five, are currently our five subgroups within the, uh, the network. Uh, some Dartmouth residents are getting involved with Rwanda. Sam Martin, I don't know where she is, but she's. Uh, she was, uh, uh, she's wrote a fantastic proposal on uh, using NIPPV, NIPV, non-invasive ventilation, since we don't have surfactant uh, and we don't have blood gases to take away a baby's draft to breathe is usually not the best plan. So to use NIPV instead of intubating without surfactant in Rwanda. Um, uh, Shashank is, uh, sent me a proposal about creating a congenital cardiac disease registry in Rwanda. And we'll be working with one of the uh, cardiologists, pediatric cardiologists trained individuals there. I also am mentoring seven Rwanda pediatric residents who are interested in doing research in neonatology um, and one uh, UK neonatology fellow. And that's, uh, that's pretty much it. So now let's leave some time for some questions for everyone. Uh, if you have any questions, just let us know. We uh, certainly want to thank these two gentlemen, because they could have talked for an hour each. Uh, and they both wanted to leave some time for questions, so that's fantastic. I want to take one minute to go into recruitment mode. Um, I've talked with many of you about the Rwanda program, and I think there's been a ton of interest. You all know it's a major, major commitment, a time commitment. It can be extraordinarily rewarding, as you've heard. But for subspecialists, the minimum requirement is an eight-week stay in country. Uh, and for generalists, uh, full year. In year three, which will start this summer, Tiffany Milner, uh, one of our hospitalists, is going to be going for a full year. Uh, and Jim Little, who is uh, the gentleman from the University of Wyoming that we've sponsored, is going to go back for a full year. These two gentlemen are very interested in re-upping uh, for year three. Uh, they have to work with their sections on mm -hmm. you know, finding the time and the coverage, if you will, uh, for their uh, uh, eight weeks or so that they will be there are other ways for faculty here to get involved. And, and some, a couple of folks, I think Adam Weinstein and uh, Matt Braga, have given lectures from Dartmouth to uh, some of the teaching hospitals in Rwanda. And we're revving that up. There's interest in getting more involvement, especially by subspecialists, and giving targeted lecturers to uh, uh, the residents over there in, in Rwanda. And we're working with DH Telecommunications to facilitate that. So they've already been talking directly with IT uh, counterparts in Rwanda. So there's many ways to get involved. There are additional ways. Many of you have probably been contacted by email uh, with very uh, difficult cases and asking for your consultative advice. So stay tuned, uh, stay involved. And if you do have uh, significant interest in trying to arrange for involvement with this program, I'm happy to talk with it. So why don't we open it up if anyone has any questions? Yes. Jack, you partially answered a question I had about language and communicating with the staff. What about with the patients, their families? Are yeah. they primarily speaking English now? When I was there, it was. Uh, most do not speak English. So uh, most of the communication with families is with uh, the resident as an interpreter. So my primary role, honestly, was working with the medical team. I did not see patients independently. And I, for the most part, didn't uh, run a clinic with uh, a resident. I, I was involved on the inpatient service. So we, the team discussion was in English. Um, it's a good point, though, because 
uh, one of the main things I did, honestly, I think, was uh, the, the concept of uh, full information about bad information is, is not so familiar to them. So often patients where it would be that we couldn't help would be discharged home with some pain medicine without really explaining to the family what was happening. And the family would kind of figure out what was happening. But um, they found it hard to kind of have those very, you know, uh, blunt, if you will, but kind discussions. And so they asked me if I could work with residents, speak to the families, have the residents translate, and that involved them in the process at the same time. Where did, uh, another practical issue, where, where did you guys live? Hey, what you, what you do? Uh, I was very fortunate. So logistics of arranging things for so people who go for a year uh, are you know spend a couple weeks finding a place to rent, basically, uh, and there are opportunities to have that. If you're there for eight weeks, you don't want to spend two weeks finding a place to stay. And I was fortunate in that one of the uh, Dartmouth folks, Chris Paletta, who's a surgeon actually from Walter Reed, a plastic surgeon was willing to uh, offer a room in his place for me to stay. And so I didn't have to spend time. But that's uh, actually a logistical issue that is being addressed by the team, that um, if you have people coming for eight weeks, you really need to have a, uh, a place other than a hotel, which are uh, very expensive at Western prices, for them to be able to come in and stay. Uh, you know, some kind of a shared apartment sort of thing, a place where it's not too far away from where you're going to be working and all of that. That really wasn't in place while I was there, but the housing worked out well. I didn't actually stay that close to where I worked, but there was another member of the pediatric team who lived out in our direction. I was able to carpool with them. Public transportation is not bad, but it takes about, you know, instead of a 20-minute drive, it would take about an hour uh, to get in or home. The first year, uh uh, visitors uh, were really the pioneers. That they had to blaze the trail as far as uh, finding housing, transportation, etc. That largely is now uh, engaged. There's the Clinton Foundation as well as the Ministry of Health have uh, coordinating centers now, which help facilitate this. And there's a learning curve that we've gone through, such that year one uh, faculty hand down their uh, experiences and their housing, their cars, etc., to the next generation that comes in. So. Uh, it's kind of revving up and becoming more uh, user-friendly, if you will. But those first-year folks were really the pioneers uh, and did a great job. It's got a lot easier. Last time, I just emailed people who were working in PEDS there and said, does anyone have extra room? There were like three offers. Yeah, we have extra room. It's just, you know, I just know where you want to stay. And I say, depending on what time, the walking distance of each of the hospitals on that. It sounds like, I'm not sure if this is true, it sounds like Partners in Health has all this work that they're doing, and then this group has all this work they're doing, and I don't think you're necessarily duplicating resources since they're so slim, but you may be duplicating energy and planning and mental energy. I'm wondering what's the plan. I know Partners in Health usually goes in heavy and then really wants to give over care and builds it up so that the country itself is doing it. So I, I, it sounds like there may be some ways to improve communication or get the guys to work together because yeah. I talk a lot to Stu, I don't hear about this, and I talk to you guys and hear a little bit about PAH. It seems like a lot of that work is the same goal. It's all the same goal. So that was, that's actually, you know, one of my main goals is to facilitate that. Um, I think things have clearly improved from, let's say, last summer uh, till December time. Um, <laughs> And it's for a variety of reasons. One of the problems is that uh, both this program and the Partners in Health program tend to have people for a limited number of years there. So that you develop a good working relationship between two people, one at each place, but when they change, suddenly that's not there anymore. So the goal is really to develop a system that of regular communication a defined way of you know how urgent requests are, are made, plus a weekly conference call, plus uh, you know advance notice of when somebody needs to come back from the chemotherapy hospital, 
to the teaching hospital to have surgery. Wilms tumor is treated with chemotherapy before it's resected in uh, the developing world. And so the patients go back and forth and um, setting up systems that can continue even when the players change. But that's, a, that, that's an important uh, aspect. And the other thing that we worked on was uh, can certain simple chemotherapy actually be supplied by Partners in Health to be administered at the teaching hospital center where because they can't afford it otherwise. And that's something that's under discussion. It's not in practice yet. So from the NICU perspective, um, the, the PIH, so almost all of the foreign input used to be mostly from Belgium before. So the PIH, the Belgian people, didn't have a whole lot of ground. Then when HRH came, there's a lot of people that know each other between PIH and HRH. For example, the pediatric director of PIH was my sub when I was a NICU fellow at, at, uh, at Brigham. Um, and now, like with things like the network, there the PIH is on the neonatal network. So now we're starting to share, the, they've shared the data sheet, they've shared the nursing protocols. Their nursing protocols are way better than what we have at other hospitals. Um, like our data collection sheet's better. So we're just, we're not, there's a lot more sharing now, but this is relatively new since the start of the HRH program, which was less than two years ago. Thanks, Jack and Paul and Tyler, and exciting work for all of us to <coughs>